Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Zane Asher, and here is what you need to know. In China, the death toll spikes over the weekend as the coronavirus continues to spread. And morning mamba, basketball players and fans all stunned, stunned by the death of Kobe Bryant. And on Capitol Hill, President Trump's defense team takes center stage again as details from John Bolton's manuscript emerge. It is Monday, and this is First Move. Welcome to all of you. So good to have you with us on this uh, very, very busy and certainly sad Monday. Let's begin, though, before we get to the news about Kobe Bryant. Let's begin with a quick check for you of uh, the U.S. markets. U.S. investors are bracing for a steep sell-off here on Wall Street. All the major U.S. averages are on track to fall, almost one and a half percent or more as coronavirus fears grip global markets. U.S. stocks are coming off their worst week of trading since August, with the Dow set to begin the session below the 29,000 milestone it hit earlier this month. European stocks are in risk-off mode as well. German, French and UK markets are currently down by well over 2% in Asia. Japanese shares finish the session down more than 2%. Hong Kong and Shanghai exchanges remain closed for the Lunar New Year holiday. Safe haven assets continue to perform well as global health officials report more coronavirus cases. The yield on the U.S. 10-year Treasury has fallen to 1.6%. That is its lowest level since October, and gold is up over half a percent, just showcasing really all the fears a lot of people have. Meantime, crude is trading sharply lower amid fears that the worsening health prices could slow global growth. Oil has fallen to nearly three-month lows. The spread of the coronavirus remains our main driver, our main story this Monday. China is in emergency mode as authorities race to rein in the contagion. New details over the weekend reveal the scale of the outbreak. We now know that 80 people have died with almost 2,800 cases confirmed in total. 57 million people in 15 cities remain in lockdown. The Lunar New Year holiday has been extended by three days. Businesses across the country are closed. Outside of China, dozens of cases have been confirmed in at least, in at least 13 locations. David Culver joins us live now from Beijing. So, David, if it is indeed true, if it is indeed true that the virus can actually spread before symptoms show, how does that complicate efforts to contain it? This is incredibly troubling if it is in fact the case, Zane, because the reality is, according to health officials, is that a lot of this is still really unknown. But here's what they suspect is a possibility, is that during the incubation time, the one to 14 days that they believe somebody may have been exposed and could potentially contract the virus themselves, that period is also a risk 
to other individuals that that person comes in contact with. They say that person could potentially spread the virus even further without even knowing it. So why is that an issue? Well, look at the screening mechanisms that are currently in place. You've got airports, railway stations, and even hotels that will check the temperature of, of individuals as they either come into a country or even come into a building. And that's an assessment of whether or not they're running a fever. That in of itself is not enough if this is something that could last far longer than that. For example, two weeks uh, that somebody could potentially be capable of transmitting that. So if they come into the country, they're not showing any symptoms, then you've got a long duration in which there's a potential risk there. Now, that's obviously still so early to be confirmed, but it's suspected. And that is enough to have territories in other countries reacting. We know that Hong Kong, for example, has issued a ban on anyone who has recently been in Hubei province or is from Hubei province. They can't come into Hong Kong for at least two weeks time. In Singapore, any students or staff members from schools who have been in mainland China, anywhere in mainland China, cannot come back into the schools for a two-week duration. So it's clearly having an impact. All this as containment efforts are moving forward. We know that the construction of not one, but two new hospitals is currently underway. State media reporting that this construction is rapidly happening. They're expected to open one of them within six days, the other within two weeks time. Combined, they'll hold more than 2,000 patients. Now, all, all of this as the World Health Organization has their leader here in Beijing meeting with health officials, trying to get a better understanding, Zane, as to how this virus spreads, what it's all about, and what can be done to stop it. David Culver, live for us there. Thank you so much. Stocks around the globe are falling as investors weigh the economic risk of the outbreak. Anna Stewart is joining us live now. So, Anna, I mean, this is a real cause for concern for any company, not just in the U.S., but around the world that has deep exposure to China. Yeah, and we're seeing a lot of reaction today. I'd say the market reaction last week was a little more mixed. Today, you can see investors really taking into account the very real risk of slower economic growth in China and the knock-on effect for many sectors. I'll take you to Asia and Europe. Only the Nikkei opened today, really, of the main markets. Chinese markets closed, of course, for Chinese uh, Lunar New Year. But you can see the Nikkei down uh, a couple of percent, I believe, if we can bring those up. Also, we have the European indices. They were all in the red this morning. The FTSE 100, the CAC Courant, the Zetra DAX. And sector specific, if you look at the stocks that are really being impacted, it is those that have high um, influence with China, luxury stocks particularly. Take a look at LVMH, Dior. Caring and Burberry, all heavily in the red. They are very reliant on the Chinese consumer, both in China, but also, of course, those Chinese consumers traveling around the world. And that is also why travel stocks are down. The risk to travel, not just for the big long-haul airlines, actually, like IAG, owner British Airways or KLM, but also EasyJet. That's a short-haul carrier. It does not fly to Asia. But you can see the impact there as more people just worry about traveling more generally. Uh, and looking more at the economic picture, the risk for factories being shut, shops being shut, travel restrictions means that output, consumption, all likely taking a hit. And there you can see the mining stocks down as well, down 4% for Glencore and for BHP Billiton. Uh, worries, of course, that the demand for, for, for raw materials will slump as a result of a lack of output and consumption. Zane? 
And just in terms of oil more specifically, because uh, obviously the Chinese economy is deeply linked with the rest of the world, and that means, of course, the commodity markets are going to be affected. How has oil specifically been impacted by this? Yeah, seeing a big slump actually in oil today will bring up those prices for you. China is the biggest importer of crude oil, so it's really not a surprise that you see this reaction there. Brent crude down uh, 3%, WTI similar actually. Uh, what we're seeing here is a perhaps more sentiment-based because the knock-on effect for demand in oil will likely be further down the road. So analysts are hoping that perhaps this will be short-term, depending on what happens with the virus next. Uh, will a, uh, a vaccine be found? Will we see it starting to spread less quickly? A lot of attention on the SARS outbreak of 2002-2003 to kind of guesstimate how markets might react in the next few weeks. That knocked 2% of GDP, of quarterly GDP in China in 2002-2003. Currently, expectations are for this not to be as bad. So far, the virus doesn't appear to be as deadly, but of course, it's very early stages. Zane? All right, Anna Stewart, my first thank you so much. All right, this is a sad one because we are all deeply moved, deeply saddened uh, and, and just hurt, quite frankly, by the death of a basketball legend. Emotional tributes are pouring in from around the world after Kobe Bryant died in a helicopter crash at age 41. I still cannot believe that I've just said those words. Uh, the chopper, we now know, went down near Los Angeles Sunday morning, killing all nine people on board including Bryant's 13-year-old daughter, Gigi. The crash happened under foggy conditions. Investigators are working to determine uh, what exactly caused the accident. The group was traveling to Gigi's basketball game. She followed in her dad's footsteps. Andy Scholes joins us live now. So Andy, I just, I, what a sad day. I mean, what is there to say? I can't believe I've just uttered those words. I can't believe I'm speaking about Kobe Bryant in past tense now. Um, all of our hearts here are so heavy. I know that you interviewed him just two weeks ago. You were a fan of his. Walk us through what he meant to you and, and what his personality was like. Yeah, I mean, Zane, I, like many, was a huge fan of Kobe Bryant. And, you know, my heart sunk when I saw the news alert come across on Sunday of this tragic accident. And one of the reasons I was a big fan, like so many others, was you know Kobe's work ethic, his relentless drive to just be great. It was unmatched. He inspired so many people around the globe with that work ethic. You know, we may never see another athlete like Kobe uh, ever again. And you know, Michael Jordan's career was winding down in the '90s. You know, NBA fans, you know, they feared what would happen to the league without Michael Jordan. Well. You know, Kobe Bryant more than carried that torch. He came into the league saying, you know, he was going to be the next great one. He was going to be the next Jordan. And one thing about Kobe, you know, he talked the talk and he certainly walked the walk, backing up what he said with just amazing accomplishments. Five NBA championships, you know, NBA arenas around the country uh, holding moments of silence on Sunday. The Spurs and Raptors both taking a 24-second shot clock violation to start the game in order to honor Kobe. Kobe, of course, wore the number 24 at the end uh, of his Lakers career. Uh, this is certainly the most devastating day in NBA history. Many players around the league just in tears as they took the floor for their games. Many also getting emotional while they were playing out there on the floor. And Dwayne Wade, he retired from the league last season. He was good friends with Kobe, and he shared this emotional message. We'll forever, forever miss you, man. You're a legend. You're an icon. You're a father. You're a husband. Your son, your brother. Your friend. Thank you for being my friend. I love you, brother. And Kobe's old running mate, Shaquille O'Neal, who he won three championships with, 
uh, also very emotional. He posted, there's no words to express the pain I'm going through with this tragedy of losing my niece Gigi and my brother Kobe Bryant. I love you and you will be missed. Michael Jordan also weighing in saying, I am in shock over the tragic news of Kobe and Gianna's passing. Words can't describe the pain I'm feeling. I loved Kobe, he was like a little brother to me. We used to talk often and I will miss those conversations very, very much. And Zane, you know, I was you know, lucky enough to actually interact with Kobe in t two sectors of my life. You know, I was actually a ball boy for the Houston Rockets when I was in college. And when I sat down with Kobe just 12 days ago, I, I showed him a picture of, of me and him from 2003. And, and he laughed and you know, said we were both youngsters back then. And I actually took that opportunity, Zane, to thank Kobe for just being so nice to everyone. You know, he was one of the best players. He was the best player in the NBA back then. And he still took the time to take pictures with everyone, sign autographs for everyone. It's something that a lot of superstar players just don't do. And uh, when I thanked Kobe for being so nice to everyone, Zane, he just smiled at me and nodded. And you know, that's, that's a memory I'm gonna cherish forever. And uh, that's just who Kobe was. He was a nice, genuine person. And the loss of him, Gigi, and everyone else who was on that helicopter with him, just such a tragedy. Yeah, you can really feel the sunlight of his spirit. Just seemed like such a, a beautiful person. Um, Andy Tolls, thank you so much. We wish Kobe Bryant a safe journey home. Andy, thank you. All right, these are the stories making headlines around the world. President Trump is denying he told John Bolton that aid to Ukraine was tied to an investigation into the Democrats, including Joe Biden. That contradicts an unpublished draft manuscript written by Bolton about his time as the president's national security advisor. The manuscript's been leaked to the New York Times. Susan Malveaux is joining us live now from Capitol Hill with the latest. So, uh, Suzanne, how dangerous could John Bolton actually be for the U.S. president? That's a very good question, Zane, because as you realize, it was just over the weekend that the White House uh, counsel's team presented their opening arguments, had a chance to talk to several uh, senators, Republican senators, who all expressed a great deal of confidence uh, that they made their case and that the, this would be wrapped up this week. But this is really a game changer, a potential game changer, when you have these comments coming from the National Security Advisor, John Bolton, in this transcript, this excerpt from his upcoming book. It could be very damaging, and it really news the call and the case the Democrats are making for the need for direct witnesses like John Bolton as well as documents. In just hours, President Trump's defense team will make its case against Trump's removal from office. But explosive new details from former National Security Advisor John Bolton's impending book could now change the direction of the trial. A report in the New York Times describes dozens of pages in Bolton's unpublished manuscript on how the Ukraine matter evolved in the months before he left the White House last September. Bolton claims President Trump told him in August they should continue to hold nearly $400 million in military aid to Ukraine until officials there helped with investigations into Democrats, including the Bidens, undermining a key pillar of the president's impeachment defense that the two circumstances are unrelated. A source with direct knowledge of the manuscript tells CNN the New York Times telling of Bolton's account of the Ukraine aid hold discussion with Trump is accurate. President Trump denying Bolton's claims, tweeting, if John Bolton said this, it was only to sell a book. I don't know if we left on the best of the terms. I would say probably not, you know, and so you don't like people testifying when 
they didn't leave on good terms. The Times says the book also details conversations Bolton says he had with key cabinet members, including Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Attorney General Bill Barr. I think Ambassador Bolton is an important witness to hear from directly. There's a lot of missing blanks here that would be helpful if we could have the direct testimony in order to complete the record. In a joint statement, the House impeachment managers urging the Republican senators to vote to allow new documents and witnesses, writing, there is no defensible reason to wait until this book is published, when the information he has to offer is critical to the most important decision senators must now make, whether to convict the president of impeachable offenses. Before the Times report, Republican leaders were confident that they would defeat the vote this week. But now it is less certain, according to three GOP sources. I don't know how my Republican colleagues cannot call for witnesses. Senator Romney has called for witnesses. They should all be calling for witnesses. We have to get to the truth. And Zane, it was just moments ago I had a chance to speak to Senator John Cornyn, Republican from Texas, part of the Republican leadership, and I asked him about whether or not this was, in fact, a game changer here, and he simply kind of tried to uh, blow it off, if you will, or make it less significant, saying, well, this is consistent with what the um, House managers, impeachment managers, have been arguing all along. But, Zane, what is not consistent is that this is Bolton's firsthand accounting. This is not hearsay. This is a direct link uh, to the president and to that he did not have a response he also said that he would wait until the white house council would conclude its own argument before making that decision or any kind of announcement on witnesses so far cornyn and many of the other republicans have been against that calling for this to get over with very quickly zane suzanne mother thank you so much President Donald Trump is set to meet separately with Israeli leaders, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his political rival Benny Gantz. Mr. Trump will unveil the long-awaited peace plan for ending the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The deal spearheaded by President Trump's senior advisor and son-in-law Jared Kushner is expected to address the status of Jerusalem and the fate of Palestinian refugees. Okay, this is first move. Still to come here with tens of millions of people on lockdown in China. How is the coronavirus hitting the world's second largest economy? And following the tragic death of Kobe Bryant, we take a look at the business empire of one of the world's greatest basketball players ever. move on yet another challenging day for global investors. Stocks are extending their losses from late last week as health officials attempt to halt the spread of the coronavirus. The U.S. now has reported its fifth, its fifth coronavirus case. U.S. stocks are set to fall one and a half percent or more when trading gets underway in about eight minutes or so from now. European stocks are already sharply lower, down by well over 2% right now. Uh, all the major U.S. averages fell from record highs last week, dropping about 1%. The Dow has fallen for four straight sessions. It could drop into negative territory for the year in early trading today. Leland Miller is the CEO of China Beige Book joins us live now. So you think about what China has actually been through economically. Obviously, we've talked about the slowdown. Um, then we've also talked about the trade war between the U.S. and China. We did get the phase one trade deal signed, but it's important to remember that there are several tariffs still in place before we get to phase two. And now this. 
What is going to be the long-term fallout of the coronavirus? Yeah, trying to catch, catch a break right now. Uh, look, this this should be a relatively short-term episode. By short-term, I mean several months. Uh, you're in the escalation period right now. Uh, you're not going to see, you probably see a terrible February. It could go into March and April. Uh, but this is something that should be a multi-month story, but not something that's going to tear the economy from its foundations in 2020, unless we see something change, unless we see the, the response by the government not sufficient enough, unless we see, uh, you know, even more widespread disbelief over the type of figures uh, and, 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 health, and, and health information that China is sharing with the rest of the world. But this should be a relatively short-term story, but the short-term could be quite bad. Okay, so just in terms of the short-term, specifically for certain segments of the market, uh, we should be looking closely at airline stocks. We should be looking at any kind of company that has exposure to China, especially retail, consumer goods, that sort of thing. Yeah, we're talking about travel and tourism. Those, those are getting wiped out right now. Uh, cons most consumer stocks, people don't want to go out and shop. They don't want to go out. They don't even want to commute to work. China's even shutting down certain elements, uh, certain places of work and property offices are being closed. And, you know, I'm sure manufacturing uh, is taking a big hit next starting next month when people aren't going to want to go to their factories. So uh, in the short term, uh, you're going to see a, a particularly big dent in anything related to travel or, con or consumption. And the problem with that is this is Lunar New Year period. This is supposed to be the highlight of the year. So th the numbers are going to be ugly, no question. Qu it's it just a, whether this is going to continue past three or four months from now. And China is also the largest importer of crude oil, isn't it? So mm -hmm. that also has global uh, complications as well. Well, this is this is going to have a big effect on oil. People think that Chinese growth is slowing down. They think that China's building less, then, then oil's going to take a big hit. You're already you're already seeing that uh, pressure be, uh, on markets. Okay, so what, just to sort of look at the glass uh, half full and see the more positive angle to the story, what is, what is it going to take to actually reassure investors that the Chinese government has got this under control? Well, I think there has to be transparency. There has to be a confidence in the level of transparency that the Chinese government's been putting forward. Uh, there has not been so far. I think if you look at how this started in Wuhan, uh, it, it, was, it started as a cover-up. Now, whether it was local officials or central government officials, this is the story of, of China. And so I think there has to be confidence that the Chinese government is telling the truth, that it's sharing the requisite information with, with, uh, with global health officials, that they've done a sufficient amount to, to ring-fence problematic areas, that there's enough effort going in into, into stopping flows of people in, in, in problematic ways. There just needs to be a higher level of confidence in the action of the Chinese government. You're seeing a much stronger response over the last few days, but it's still not enough. So uh, you mentioned just during the commercial break to me that this has actually crossed from being a micro issue to now a macro issue. When did that crossover actually happen? Can you pinpoint it? I would say over this past weekend, when you saw Saturday morning, the, from the, the levels of infected from Saturday morning to Sunday afternoon even jumped dramatically. Uh, so you, you, you're seeing the, this is a very contagious disease. This, the, there's, some, there's some debate into how contagious it is, but you're seeing this spread out quite uh, quite rapidly. You've got the Lunar New Year where everybody's traveling everywhere else. And they've ex so extended it. They've extended this, and, and, and right now, I think that the key is just trying to, trying to figure out how they can contain this and stop the spread. If, if every person's supposedly affecting two and a half other people, you've got a real problem unless you put in the, the right safeguards. All right, Leland Miller, my first. Thank you so much. Okay, you are watching, watching First Move, excuse me, the opening bell is coming up after this short break. Don't go away.
was the opening bell, starting another trading week uh, here on Wall Street at the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Zane Asher. You are, of course, watching First Move. And as expected, U.S. stocks are tumbling right now, right out of the gate. Look at the red across your screen. The Dow is actually down almost 515 points, 50 points rather. Uh, all the major averages are down well over 1% as the global health officials attempt to contain the deadly coronavirus. More than 2,700 people have now contracted the illness and some 80 people have died. That number sadly continues to rise. There are many other challenges facing investors this week. More than 140 companies in the S&P 500 are set to report fourth quarter results, including heavyweights like Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon and Boeing. The Fed meets to discuss interest rates for the first time this year and the Bank of England holds its policy meeting on Thursday, one day before the UK formally leaves uh, the EU on January 31st this Friday. Time now for a quick check of our global movers. Coronavirus fears are triggering fresh losses for airline stocks. Shares of Delta and United are both down sharply again. Casino stocks with exposure to Chinese markets are seeing shares tumble. Losses for Las Vegas, Sands and Wynn Resorts are outpacing the rest of the market. Reports say the number of mainland Chinese visitors to Asian gambling hub Macau has actually plunged 80% since the outbreak. Uh, Samir Samana joins us live now. He is the senior global market strategist at Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Samir, thank you so much for being with us. So um, as the death toll and the impact of the coronavirus continues to rise, what do you imagine the long-term impact to be on the Chinese economy as a result of this, especially when you consider it in the wake of SARS 20 or so years ago? Sure. No, thank, thank you so much for having us. And, uh, you know, what we would say is, you know, a lot of what the Chinese have been trying to do over the last few years is this program slowdown as they move from a manufacturing-based economy to a consumption-based economy. And this, unfortunately, kind of strikes right at the heart of that. So at least right now, um, you know, we'll have to wait and see what the numbers look like in terms of consumer confidence, retail sales in China. Um, but the, the, the real tricky part is going to be how do Chinese authorities respond not only to the outbreak, but then do they try and stimulate the economy? and get those consumers to kind of come back out. But just in terms of uh, specific sort of U.S. companies that are going to be affected by this, um, it's any company that's exposed to travel, tourism, retail, luxury retail, consumer goods. We're seeing airline stocks get hit by this. Just walk us through which industries are going to be extremely nervous right now. So, you know, there's already reports of some restaurant companies from the U.S. closing down um, stores in China. So, you know, travel and, you know, leisure and, again, all those discretionary spending things that, you know, folks do when we go out of the house um, are probably going to be the, the first place that, that starts to get hit. Um, a second one that I would throw out there would be, you know, we've already seen weakness in energy prices, and this is putting further downward pressure. And so you're starting to see that kind of find its way into the market through high-yield energy spreads. So that's an additional pressure point that's to be watched and and so just in terms of specifically crude oil we're seeing crude oil suffer as a result of this but uh, China is the largest importer of crude oil in the world so what will the domino effect be for the global economy 
So, I mean, if we were to have some type of broader spill out into, you know, let's say energy prices, you know, kind of ending up back in their 15, 16 lows, um, I mean, we all kind of remember what high yield spreads did back then. And, you know, you've already seen natural gas, you know, break below $2 per BTU. Um, so, you know, again, we'll, we'll have to kind of make sure that, you know, crude oil kind of hangs in there. Um, now, you know, OPEC plus has kind of been, you know, stabilizing that market over the last few years. They may have to step in and, and cut some more. So, you know, there is that cartel that's kind of become much more effective over the last few years. But if oil prices were to break meaningfully below 50, um, it does call into question some of the profitability of some of these smaller companies. And just in terms of the response we're seeing uh, from Chinese authorities, what type of response is the market looking for in order to get that reassurance? I mean, I think, you know, for the most part, the response has been kind of what the market's hoping for, which is the Chinese authorities have been much more transparent than they have in the past. They seem to be moving with much more, you know, speed than they have in the past. The tricky part is you just have, you know, this this virus, which, you know, is being, you know, transmitted almost before the symptoms show up. And so it's a little bit tricky to try and figure out exactly how to quarantine and contain it. And so that's going to be the key is, you know, again, um, time and, and the authorities continue to work the way they have been. So, you know, from that standpoint, I don't think the market worried. I think the bigger issue is how we were positioned prior to the news of the virus breaking out was so extreme on the bullish side that unfortunately this is really at this point kind of a, a pullback, um, but it just you know feels that much more severe given you know how quiet a, a ride to the upside we were seeing to start the year. And obviously this is an event that the market was clearly uh, not prepared for at all. It could actually have a lot of just, at least in the short term, significant damage on the Chinese economy. But we now know that the Chinese Ministry of Finance is actually allocating about $8.7 billion to help stop the spread of the virus. Does that assuage the market somewhat? You know, hopefully. I mean, again, you know, just the authorities need to keep up what they're doing, which is to be transparent to make sure that they're acting, you know, expeditiously. Um, and, you know, again, unfortunately, you know, we've got a very heavily populated world with a lot of travel going on. And so it's probably going to take a little bit of time. And unfortunately, that's what markets hate is uncertainty and having to wait. And that's probably going to be something that, you know, investors will have to kind of manage um, is that waiting game and their emotions, you know, as they hear the headlines coming out. Samir Samana from the Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Thank you so much. Coming up, how Coca-Cola plans to tackle environmental issues while continuing to use plastic bottles. That's next. Climate change uh, was the headliner at this year's World Economic Forum. Many businesses laid out plans to address the issue. Coca-Cola says it will focus on collecting and recycling as the company plans to continue its use of plastic bottles. Uh, in Davos, Julia Chatley discussed Coca-Cola's efforts to fight climate change with CEO James Quincy. Uh, it's great we're having the debate. I mean, we've been doing some things. Actually, we made some progress, but there's much more we have to do. Even though we were in, in there early, we've got to do a lot more. Uh, and I think that that's why the debate is good, because the, the real learning is there's no way one company, one government, one bit of society can actually help us get over the line on what's needed the solution. We actually all need to come together. And it's, and it's possible. There are many things we can do to get the ball rolling, to be in a better position, uh, to face some of the issues we have on, on the environment and on sustainability. It's doable. What do you mean by all coming together, though? Do you mean a kind of not just big business in one country? Do you mean 
countries all collectively, like a Marshall Plan effectively for climate change if that's what's required? I think there are, there are different solutions for different bits of the problem. There are some things that are profoundly local. And, and then it's the companies in that locality, the local government or the national government, civil society, and the solution can be done there. There are some things that need a broader agreement, whether that be some way of pricing in the types of uh, carbon, the way your energy comes, whether it comes with dirtier carbon or less dirty carbon. That needs a broader agreement, whether it's regional or global. So there are some things that are multilateral and global, and there's some things that are profoundly local, and we can get those things done even while we wait for the bigger answers. Water neutral in 2016, you beat your targets. 25% reduction in carbon this year. 2030... 50% recycled content in terms of your bottles, but it's even bigger than that. Yeah. By 2030, we want to collect one bottle or can back for every one we sell. The aim is to stop talking about whether plastic is good or bad, the philosophical kind of debate, and say what we really need is zero waste, nothing to the environment, and a much lower carbon footprint. And the solution to that is actually to bring the, the packaging back, the plastic bottles and the plastic. If we can get them back, they have great materials. They can actually just be remade into new bottles and cans. And you can truly get a circular economy, radical reduction in the use of resources, no waste to the environment. It's a fantastic environmental solution. It's a fantastic carbon footprint solution. There's no waste. It really can be done. And we already have countries in our business system where the collection is over 90% and we will very soon have the first country where all the packaging is made from 100% recycled plastic. It's doable. Where are you doing that? Where are you almost there? The first country is going to be Sweden. (laughs) I guess I'm not surprised by that. Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, the countries that are more organised in the advanced economies around collection are places like Scandinavia and Germany, where we already have over 90% collection. There are emerging markets where we're well over 70, like Mexico and South Africa. We know it's doable. The key to get over is collection. Then we can have a fully circular economy. Greta Thunberg came here. She said net zero is not enough, wants real zero in terms of carbon emissions. And, you know, I've spoken to some CEOs and some business leaders who said, then turn off all the lights, then stop all the cars. That's not feasible. What would real zero mean for your business? I do feel like we need a bit of a reality check. Yeah, again, I I think we have to start with what's our objective? What are we trying to solve for? And we're trying to solve for the increasing temperatures. Absolutely, we need to bring down carbon emissions. And we know that the people who are poor today deserve access to the same sort of lifestyle we have. Uh, So there's going to be pressure on growth come what may. You know, those people are going to vote in politicians that want growth. So we have to understand that the people who vote in the politicians that decide the policy are going to ask for growth. They're going to demand of the governments and of the companies that we solve the problem and deliver them growth. If not, they'll just choose another set of politicians. So I think that's what we have to focus on. Where are the solutions that can largely continue to have the same lifestyle or better, maybe different ways, uh, and save the planet? That's the space where people can get energised. The thing that will bring the consumers in is if you can have the same thing you've got today or better with a much lower carbon footprint, you'll come with me tomorrow. Talk to me about opportunities as you head forward. Coke plus coffee... Coke energy. Now, there'll be people watching who know about my Diet Coke habits and I shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be leading, the, uh, <laughs> leading the witness here, but really, Coke energy and Coke plus coffee. 
Yeah, it's look, working. It's, <laughs> it's an, their, their experiments, you know, the, the Coke franchise is interesting and vibrant, and pe and people love it. Yeah. Um, and 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 these variants, whether it be the the, the Coke Plus with the coffee uh, or the energy, it's interesting, and people it brings people into the franchise. It gives them an experience of Coke. Um, some some of these experiments will not work and will fail and have to be sidelined and some will be fantastic and great and stay with us um, uh, well into the future. Where are the biggest growth opportunities for you? Uh, we're a global business. We're literally almost everywhere. But you're shoring up businesses in emerging markets. You're looking, I think, at your, um, your supply chains as well. You've made a significant There's amount of tweaks I think to focus on. We have and there will always be tweaks to go on um, but we, we truly are a global business and therefore there's stuff happening in every region like we, we've got good growth in the US yeah, we've got good growth in Europe, Latin America the emerging markets over time will become a bigger and bigger part of the story the reality is it's a business that sells you know a relatively uh, affordable option to enjoy yourself or hydrate yourself or whatever um, and therefore it's related to the number of people and the number of people there's a lot of people in asia so the the, the center of gravity if you like of the business is slowly shifting east and that's going to be part of our future of course there'll be ups and downs in the countries we'll offer different drinks in different places but the center of gravity will slowly shift east interesting and you're comfortable with that yeah, we're, it's a what's great about this business is people see us as global, yeah. but actually it's truly local. Every drink that you drink in a country, whether it's Switzerland or the US or wherever, was made in that country. Uh, and therefore it can expand naturally. What's going to be the biggest challenge? Um, some of, the, some of uh, the biggest challenge over the last few years has been parking the vision to the dark clouds on the horizon and some of the pessimism in the air and actually focusing on the business that we run and the consumers we engage with, they're actually in a pretty good space. The clouds are kind of still floating there, trying yeah, to kind of <laughs> get their way in, but the consumer's in a pretty good space. So if we stay focused on them and our business, I think things will be better. So you're confident? I'm never confident, but I'm optimistic. Trace is a media company specializing in Afro-urban culture. It has millions of young viewers tuning in to its mixture of music and sports shows, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. Now its founder wants to move the company into the world of education. Olivia Laouche is a man with a million plans. The chairman and CEO of Trace is hoping to leverage the popularity of his many music channels to encourage people to engage with the learning process as well as vocational training. The project is called Trace Academia. Trace Academia is a new generation online learning platform. So we said, let's apply what we know from our entertainment expertise to education and let's also use the power of digital all these uh, interactive features that now exist thanks to digital. And let's also try to get expertise of jobs where it is, expertise of job is with the companies. So we decided to mix these three different elements, entertainment, digital, industry expertise, and to build a new platform, what we call an edutainment platform, that will bring a massive innovation to the vocational training activity in Africa and after to the rest of the world. 
Power the voices of UK urban culture. While being fun and cool is central to the Trace brand, education is something it's also taking very seriously. We are Trace. Paris-based digital agency Wiz Media has been tasked with creating its online learning platform. So um, this is the desktop version. And of course, in the end, success is going to be measured uh, as a number of success stories. And a success story for us is going to be, you know, uh, I am a learner. I learned on Trace Academia and I got a job in the end. Born in Martinique with a home in South Africa and his head office in France, Laoshi is a truly global citizen. He wants to make sure that everyone is offered an opportunity to succeed. If we can build this platform and make it a game changer for the lives of people, a positive game changer, then I will have considered that I have accomplished a kind of dream. You're watching First Move. We'll be right back after this short break. Survivors of the Auschwitz Nazi concentration camp have returned to, te- to lay a reef 75 years on from its liberation. You are watching live pictures of a commemorative event that is happening right now. In 1945, the Soviet army threw open the camp's gates and freed those who had survived. About uh, one million Jews died at Auschwitz. Fans around the world are mourning the loss of basketball legend Kobe Bryant after a tragic helicopter crash in Southern California. His 13-year-old daughter Gigi and seven other people also died in that crash as well. They were traveling to Gigi's basketball game scheduled for later on Sunday. Uh, Bryant also leaves behind a business empire as his legacy extends far beyond his time and the NBA. Alison Kosick joins us live now with details. Uh, Alison, basketball was certainly Kobe Bryant's first love, but he was so much more. He was uh, he had a budding music career at one point during his life. He won an Oscar for Best Animated Short Film. He was a businessman and an investor as well. So much more than an athlete. Walk us through it. Absolutely, Zaid. You know, he transformed his skills and his work ethic that you saw on the court, but he built a legacy off the court. He really became an entrepreneur. In fact, he was known in the business world as a brand builder and investor, a coach to other athletes and company founders. In 2013, actually, he, even before he left the NBA, he got into the investing world. He co-founded venture capital firm Bryant Stiebel with Web.com founder Jeff Stiebel. Well, now that firm has $2 billion in assets with investments in dozens of technology, media, and data companies, um, but also invests in Fortnite creator Epic Games and household product company, Honest Company. And separate from the firm, Bryant made millions on his investment in sports drink Body Armor, which in 2018 boosted its valuation by selling a stake to Coca-Cola. And then there are the endorsements, because his stamp of approval really equaled sales. And you name it, McDonald's, Sprite, Nintendo, Turkish Airlines, Nike. Nike came early in his career. First signing with Nike in 2003, Bryant, along with other big notable NBA players, really helped solidify the shoe company in a position in the basketball world. And Nike actually had multiple lines of Kobe shoes and gear. Nike even brought Bryant on stage with then-CEO Mark Parker at its annual investment meeting in 2017 to celebrate the launch of Nike's new business strategy. And as you can imagine, Nike, as the rest of us, 
are devastated. Uh, Nike releasing this statement saying we are devastated by today's tragic news. We extend our deepest sympathies to those closest to Kobe, especially his family and friends. Uh, he was one of the greatest athletes of his generation and has had an immeasurable impact on the world of sport and the community of basketball. He was a beloved member of the Nike family. We will miss him greatly. Mamba Forever. And it was Nike who partnered with Brian to launch uh, a youth basketball league in Los Angeles called the Mamba League uh, in 2017. That actually gave hundreds of kids free access to the sport. And then Bryant went ahead and, and broadened it out, created the Mamba Sports Academy. Um, so he sort of broadened it to, uh, to other sports, uh, making them accessible to kids. And as you said, he was on his way to one of those games with his daughter and uh, seven others when that helicopter crashed yesterday in Calabasas, California. Same. Yeah, Alison, our hearts are incredibly heavy. Thank you uh, so much. And before we go, I just want to give you a quick check of the markets. Let's see how the Dow is doing right now. The Dow is actually down about uh, 300 or so points because of fears regarding the coronavirus. You have to remember that China is the largest importer of crude oil, and therefore oil is being affected, as are a lot of American companies that have deep exposure to China, including any kind of travel stocks, airline stocks, uh, consumer goods stocks, all of those are, are feeling the heat right now. You can see there, uh, Brent crude is down about 2%. All right, that's it. I'm Zane Asher. Connect the World starts right after this short break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.